Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Have you ever been in a discussion wondering who the greatest college football coach of all time was? Well, you have some answers now because we have a book by Matthew Devios, Lords of the Great Iron One, the greatest coaches of all time in the college level. Matthew's here to discuss his book coming up in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. And we are going to stare down that portal tonight and talk about some of the greatest collegiate coaches of all time. And we have an author that uh, no no stranger to the show, Matthew Debios. Uh, welcome back to the Pigpen. Darren, thank you very much for having me on. It's always an honor and a privilege to be here. Yeah, Matthew, the privilege is all ours. And, uh, you know, you ha- we talked uh, last time you visited about your Lords of the Gridiron 2 book, which was about the National Football League coaches. Mm-hmm. And you uh, brought it to our attention and, and you, you shared the, the book with me. And it's a wonderful book, Lords of the Gridiron 1, which yeah. is college football's greatest coaches. And this is uh, just as spectacular as the National Football League because there are some really – uh, great names, and you did a very nice job on this book as well. Thank you so much, Darren. Thank you. Now, now Matthew, what was your inspiration for, for writing about these uh, great college coaches? Well, uh, as I said in my previous interview, I, as a historian, I have this motto, history abhors a vacuum. And my first two books uh, filled a void uh, uh, in terms of sports literature, sports history literature, you know, first with NHL coaches and then with NHL general managers, you know, no one had ever rated and evaluated, you know, those two subjects before. And looking at college football literature, uh, there, there are ample biographies of the great college coaches, but no one, as far as I know, before my effort ever really did a serious attempt at rating and ranking the great at least the great division 1a coaches in other words using like a, a, a metrical system of analysis in other words is there a way to is there is there a way to do that without submitting to sectional biases or anything like that can you find a certain universal core standard where you can judge who was better was bear bryant better than nick saban or was it the other way around how did newt rockney compare with like barry switzer and so on down the line is there a way to do that and what what Lords of the Great are in college football's greatest coaches does is fill that void and make the attempt. I mean, to create a fair and unbiased system where using four standards, uh, career value, uh, average season rating, 
uh, BQ value, which measure, measures a coach's best five consecutive years, uh, and also B5 value, a coach's uh, best five seasons overall, using a, you know, a composite rating system where you rate you got all the division 1a coaches so uh, uh, to clarify for listeners this is strictly division 1a level i'm not dealing with division 2 or division 3 coaches strictly division 1a and only those division 1a coaches who served a minimum of 10 seasons at the division 1a level there's only two exceptions to that rule in the book that's pete carroll and walter camp pete carroll only did nine years at usc and Walter Camp only did like seven seasons when he was coaching at Yale in the 1890s. But the reason why I made those two exceptions was because one, Walter Camp virtually, you could say he virtually invented American college football as we know it today. That's how he separated from soccer and rugby. He he made, literally made you know college football truly an American sport, as it were. And everything stemmed from Walter Camp, and he won at least two national champion, well, mythical national championships. There was no college polling thing back then. Everything started in 1936 in terms of college bowl, but retroactively, he won national championships for Yale and made Yale the most dominant college football program of the 19th century. I mean, if you look at their record from uh, virtually the beginning up to the 1890s, they were the most strongest college football program in the nation, literally. It's hard to believe now. <laughs> but back then, yeah, Ivy League football, Yale and Princeton were the two most dominant programs of the late 19th century. And for Keith Carroll, you know, he did nine seasons at USC, but he, he won two national championships, one in the BCS and then one on the AP poll. Uh, that's the last time you ever had a split between the college football playoff, what was then, you know, the BCS, now the college football playoff, and the AP poll. That was in 04. No, no, 03. 03, my curse. I stand corrected. But I figured that was good enough for my view, and I included them into the book. And again, uh, yeah, uh, but all the other coaches had a minimum of 10 seasons at the Division 1A level. And I ran them through. And the end result is Lords of the Gridiron, college football's greatest coaches there. And it, wor it worked out. I just, um, the, the, the question is now answered. I mean, you know, if you wanted to, you're, you're curious, how did Woody Hayes compare with like Bo Schembechler? How did Bud Wilkinson compare with like, you know, uh, 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 Bob Devani, you know, Bob Devani or whomever? Now that question is answered. I mean, who was the greatest coach who never, ever won a national championship? Simple. John Vaught of Ole Miss. Hmm. Okay. Now, how, how many different coaches uh, were there? I mean, we know you came down to the top 50, but what, what was the, the pool strength that, that uh, had 10 years in the, the highest level of collegiate football? Oh, geez. What was that final number? Um, oh, you, you could throw a ballpark out there. Was it, was it hundreds? Was it thousands? Oh, no. I think it was like, oh, no, not thousands. Definitely not thousands. I think okay. it was like... Um, 300 i think it's like 300 uh, when i when it came out in 2019 it was like 300 or so yeah i think about 300 or so 300 okay. names okay for those who are eligible you know uh and every year i i always may update my things every year and when i post them with my website which is on facebook ladies and gentlemen it's called the college football history and literature appreciation uh society on facebook and every, after every gen, after the national championship game, I always put out my updated rankings and all of that. So if you ever join the Facebook group, you, know, you always know how people are going up and down the charts and all of that. Okay. 
Oh, very, very interesting. Thank you for sharing that with us. That's a, that's a great page. Uh, I frequent yeah. it quite often and uh, try to post some things in it myself. Yeah. Um, like for example, uh, in the book, he wasn't featured in the book, but right after my book came out the season following that um, Jimbo Fisher of Texas A&M cracked the top 50 list. Brad's where before when the book came out, he wasn't on the list, but now he is. Okay. So, and he's moved up a bit. I mean, right now, uh, not counting this season, uh, Jimbo Fisher ranks uh, 36th all time. Okay, so he's moved up a bit now. Well, you know whether he can move up some more this season. I mean, I, I don't know. That's a question of it. But you know, you see, it, it, it's it's like the stock market. Either your stock is rising, or it's or it can fall, or it can stagnate, and all of that. Like last season, Dabo Sweeney of Clemson. Uh, he had, he, you know, he did not win the ACC title. And uh, so he kind of stagnated a bit Whereas the seasons before. Oh, he was advancing in leaps and bounds and all of that. Oh, he's the, and amongst all active coaches, he's the second best behind Nick Saban, according to my calculations. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. When, when you're playing in that many national championship games as he's had yeah. his teams in, uh, that's definitely uh, some credibility to get him up there. So I didn't yeah, realize right. he'd been there 10 seasons already. It's Time flies oh, yeah. by really quick, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, right now, by my not counting this season, Dabo Sweeney ranks 12th on the all-time list, according to my calculations, okay? Oh, okay. As of what happened last season, not not counting what's happening now. So so he's moved up uh, three spots since the, the book came out because he was yes. 15th in the book. So, wow. Yes. Nice. Yes. So it's a very dynamic list that you're you're carrying on, too. So that's that's awesome. Yeah. It's really great. Yeah. Yeah. So, great yeah. job. Thank now, now, what were... Uh, some of the surprise coaches, maybe, maybe somebody that you didn't expect to make the, the top 50. Hmm, surprises. A man named Fred Folsom, who was the head, who literally put the Colorado Buffaloes on the college football map. That was a bit of a surprise. But when he went out there in the 1890s, he actually did three separate stints with Colorado. He, in addition to being a great football coach, he was also a top-notch lawyer, and he was pursuing a legal career. In fact, one of the reasons why he went out there, he wanted to pursue his legal studies at the same time as he was coaching the football team. And when he went out there, I mean, Colorado had only been a state. I mean, you know, it was a, became a state in 1876, and I think he went out there was in the early 1890s. I mean, it was still very much the Wild West out there. I mean, Butch Cassidy and the Sun Gangs here were riding around Colorado robbing places and all that. So there was still this Wild West atmosphere. He came from the, he came from Dartmouth. He had been a star player at Dartmouth there. And he just, it was pretty raw. I mean, the football team, it only played a handful of teams. And sometimes they weren't even colleges. They were like local athletic clubs. That's how crude it was out there. I mean, it was, they weren't even in a conference. It was, it was this very loose association. In fact, what later became the big A conference wasn't really formed until they didn't really join until like much the thirties or the forties or something like that. But he literally emerged in a vacuum and he just built this football team and three separate times, you know, he, 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 he had a lot of undefeated seasons and he gave, basically he put them on the map slowly, but surely He's giving them legitimacy. And all of a sudden you start getting, you know, other schools, you know, they're linking up with like Nebraska and the other uh, mountain state schools out there. And, and the reason why Colorado, right, and they named the football field after him, Folsom Stadium. That's why they named it after him, because he put that football team on the map. And he later became a prestigious law professor there at the University of Colorado. But 
that's what surprised me there. I mean, he was he was born in Maine, and it, but he made his way out west, and he you know he made a name for himself as a college football coach there. Yeah, that was okay. Yeah. yeah, that that is a good because that's not one that I would have you know just going into this with some uh, precognitive uh, names coming up here. You know, uh, he w- probably wouldn't be one of my top fifty that I would have said, "Oh, this guy's got to be on that list." But yeah, m- yeah. many of the ones that are, you know, I look down there, I, I think of a name, I look at the list, I'm like, "Oh, there he is." You know, it's uh, the thinking was right. So, yeah. was there any surprises of somebody that maybe that you expected to bring me that top fifty that that didn't make it because somebody like uh, Folsom knocking him out? Jimmy Johnson. I mean, people. I, I remember when the book came out. People, it, how come a Jimmy Johnson in there? And if you read uh, the methodology chapter in the book, I kind of explain why. The problem with Jimmy Johnson is he only coached ten seasons. And his early years at Oklahoma State, he had like a couple of one or two losing seasons there that kind of dragged him down a bit. If he hadn't had those losing seasons, I think it would have improved his odds. But another key factor was twice he lost opportunities at winning a national championship. championship. When he lost the 87 Fiesta Bowl to Penn State, that damaged him. Also, his loss to Notre Dame, Lou Holtz's Notre Dame in the Catholics versus convicts game. Remember, Miami was number one in the nation. If they had not lost to Notre Dame, almost certainly they would have won that national championship because they didn't lose again for the rest of the season. If they, you know, if they had beaten Notre Dame in that game and continued to run that table, the national championship was theirs. And if he had won those two national championships, then Jimmy Johnson would have ranked among the top 50, according to my calculation. So those two bowl game losses, those two losses cost him. And also has those two losing seasons at Oklahoma State that dragged him down and was sufficient. I think I got Jimmy Johnson ranked at 64th or 65th, according to my present day calculations there. That's that's a thing. That's what people surprised some people there. Um, another surprise. Um, hmm. Uh huh. <sighs> hmm. Well, what do you think Woody about Hayes, that? Woody I, Hayes. Okay, Woody okay. Hayes. People thought Woody Hayes was going to rank higher because right now I got Woody at uh, 19th. And in my chapter on Woody, I kind of explained it. Uh, there was like four factors that uh, weighed against him. One, there was a lean period from 1958 to 1967 where Ohio State never went to the Rose Bowl. They didn't win. I think they won a Big Ten Conference Championship, but I think it was in 60, but no Rose Bowl invitations there. And back then, the Big Ten had a stupid rule called a no-repeat rule where you could not go to the Rose Bowl two consecutive years in a row. Even if you may have had the best record in the Big Ten, no, you couldn't repeat, and you had to defer. And I think it was at three or four times Ohio State was victimized by that no repeat rule. And that would have helped Woody Hayes' ranking. He would have gone up higher, especially if he had won the Rose Bowl games and all that. Also from 58 to 67, Ohio State had some lean years. I mean, they did not dominate. Uh, it was kind of like the Valley Forge of Woody Hayes' stint at Ohio State there. That was another reason. Uh, the fact that he lost to Michigan in 1969, that Ohio State, I think if they were not top ranked. They were in contention and they lost that first matchup between Bo Schembechler in 69. 
That cost him the national championship. And that harmed Woody Hayes' BQ rating because his best five consecutive years, I had it from 68 to 72. That damaged him there. That cost him some points. He could have ranked even higher if he had beaten Michigan in that game. Then uh, in 1970, when Ohio State lost the Rose Bowl to Stanford, that great upset victory where Stanford, led by Jim Plunkett, beat Ohio State, Again, that was a major bowl game loss that took points off him. It, it harmed his, you know, uh, his BQ rating, his average season rating, his B5 rating there. You see, it's a little accumulation of things. Uh, let's see, what was the fourth factor? Of that? Probably the 1976 UCLA loss. That hurt, that hurt him too. Again, yeah. again, you know, that, that cost them because they had a shot in the national championship. And again, they lost. They lost. It cost them. Yes, yes. So that's the reason why Woody Hayes didn't rank in the top 10. That's why I've got him at 19 there. Yeah, just accumulation of things. Yes. He ended up with the names that you have above him. I, I wasn't uh, disappointed in seeing where he was because I think definitely the, the gentlemen you have above him are, are probably are rightfully so. I would you know think of him probably about that spot anyway in the, the top yeah. 50. Um, now, do you, do you mind talking about the, your, your top five, who you have on there, or do you want to keep that for readers of the book? Well, it's it's been it's been out for three years. Uh, let's talk about it. Okay. Saban right now was number one. Uh, I mean, right now, according to my calculations, he was he ranks the top in best five consecutive years and also in his B5 value there. Uh, he, he was the greatest of all time in that category. I got him ranked fourth in career value uh turner was number one bear bryant's number two let's see number three i forget i don't know who was number three there uh but uh, three is uh bobby bowden the late bobby brown god rest his soul uh, but uh, every season he keeps adding on to it i think he's got right now he's got a shot at pass i don't know if he'll pass bobby bowden this season i don't know I, he'll may he'll, he'll probably come very very close as long as he doesn't lose another game as it were and i've got an average season right now i got nick saban ranked fifth but in terms of his composite rating, I mean, you know, he's tops. I mean, he's got a wide barrier, almost like 2.7 points ahead of Urban Meyer, who's ranked number two, according to my calculations there. But Saban, I mean, he just he took he restored Alabama to greatness. I mean, he had his stints, you know, at Michigan State, uh, at Toledo there and, you know, and also at LSU. And I mean, I mean, Alabama in the mid 2000s, I mean, it was just bleeding and he just turned it all around. I mean, the fact that he could actually could eclipse Bear Bryant of all people. I mean, that was so stupendous. I mean, he came so close in 2013. If it hadn't lost that Iron Bowl game to Auburn, he was going for the trifecta, which no one has ever done in college football history at the Division One A level, winning three consecutive national championships. It still hasn't been done. He came within an ace of doing it uh, without the, take away that Iron Bowl loss. I mean, in 2018, he reconstituted himself and again was dominating in the college football playoff. Uh, I mean, if he had won last year, you know, that would have been two straight consecutive championships. In this season, he would have been going in for the trifecta, but no, they lost to Georgia and all that. But it just, just a stupendous coach, one of the greatest defensive coaches of all time. I mean, he just, he did it. Uh, I mean, if my book had come out, not in 2019, but in 2018, he would have been number two. But after the after 2019, you know, he became number one, according to my calculations there. Yes. Now, Urban Meyer, I mean, 
Now with Urban Meyer, you know, he's out. And after that embarrassing episode of Jacksonville, uh, who knows whether he'll get back into it or not. I mean, uh, as far as he, he'll never get back to the pros and all that, but you know, it'll be interesting to see if he ever gets back into college coaching or considering his health issues with that. Yeah. You know, uh, with his, uh, Oh, what's that thing? It, 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 that high out of hernia or something like that. And also that, Oh, uh, that cyst, that arachnoid cyst in his head. Who knows? I mean, right now his name is kind of mud after being tarnished like that in Jacksonville. But I mean, he just, I mean, I got him, according to my calculation in terms of the average season rating, which measures a coach's ability of getting consistent maximum effort, he's number one, the greatest of all time in terms of consistent excellence. There was no, there was no drop off with Urban Meyer. I mean, with his work there at Florida and at Ohio State, I mean, always at a high level, always at high octane there. I mean, you had to hand it to him. Uh, ninth in career value there. Uh, let's see, eighth in uh, best five consecutive seasons. Fourth in you know B five, you know best five seasons over you know overall. I mean, just consistent excellence. But in many ways, he's he's consumed himself. His the stresses, the the intensity that made him a great coach also undermined his health, and it just. Um, It'll be interesting to see if he ever gets back and where does he go? I mean, you know, because he's kind of picky about what he wants. I mean, there was always this theory he always wanted to coach at Notre Dame, but right now it doesn't seem that way. And who knows, maybe with his health issues, he may never get back into the arena again. It's kind of like our prestige. And, you know, he was crushed by the pressures of it all. And there were always rumors he'd get back, but no, he never did. He just made yeah. his work as an, he stayed an announcer. And all it, that. It's not, not an easy job. I'm sure it's high stress, especially the recruiting season. That's probably the most stressful, maybe even more so than in season, uh, yeah. because it's, it's high pressure to get those high uh, five-star athletes uh, coming to your school. And you know, you don't have, a lot to persuade them other than tradition and uh you know facilities so it's yeah. challenging and uh now to bear bryant i mean i in my chapter on him i interviewed two players leroy jordan dallas cowboy great leroy jordan who was part of his 1961 national championship team his very first at jeff rutledge who, who was like the backup quarterback for the giants and the redskins in the 80s and all that who, play, who was part of his national championship teams in 78 and 79. Oh, they gave both of those men, may God bless their souls. I mean, uh, they gave me wonderful chapter and verse on the late Bear Bryant. And Bear Bryant, I mean, before Nick Saban came along, he was it. I mean, he was the man. Tony recently did Urban Meyer and Nick Saban surpass him. I mean, had, had this book come out in 2018, Bear Bryant would have been numero uno. But uh, as it turned out, you know, the, the, the just recently, you know, Saban and Meyer surpassed him. But Bear Bryant, he he was a product of his time. I don't think he could coach today, given his intensity. I mean, that famous thing at Junction, those kids in Quons, metal Quonset huts, no water and all that. Oh, there with with ESPN and all that. Oh, he probably would have. Someone would have probably would have filed a lawsuit and all that. You could not do that today. I mean, there. Oh, he probably would have been crucified in the press. But back then, you could do that sort of thing and all that. But he was such a momentous figure. I mean, even looking when I went to Tuscaloosa, I think it was a 2014. I I was doing research at their archives there, you know, copying, uh, taking notes, you know, looking at photographs, you know, uh, uh, copying data and all that. Just to look at his photo, he was such an intimidating presence. Those eyes. 
I mean, he was a generally big man and he had those eyes. I mean, you, you I could, I had to cast my eyes down. I mean, it, it, I can't imagine meeting him in person. He, he must've been such a, a powerful presence. And, and uh, I've read stories about it. When you went into his office, he had a couch that had that sagged extremely. So you were one of his players. You sat in that thing, you shrank even further. So that made him even bigger. I mean, it was part of the intimidation factor. And then he sat in that cast, that famous cast iron tower there. And uh, there's actually in the archives there, there's a painting of him sitting in that cast iron tower. It was, it was from a Sports Illustrator photograph. Uh, the, uh, someone took a photograph and there he was, the Lord of his domain, looking from that tower there. And as the story goes, if he ever saw anything that displeased him, they had a chain gate to it. When he, when you heard the rattle of that chain, everyone froze in position, and if he went down there, he wouldn't say a word. He would just point this accusing finger at you and call out a, a person's uniform number, and oh, woe be to that player, because <laughs> you screwed up. To make him come down from that tower, you really had to screw up bad, and oh, uh, you were going to be punished for it, my friend. Yes, you were going to be punished. And I remember reading in that book by Keith Donovan, a very good book called The Missing Ring about the 66 season where Alabama had a perfect record, but they didn't win the national championship. They finished third behind Notre Dame and Michigan State. Uh, so I remember there was this beautiful anecdote. Uh, his gym classes, uh, or his tra training camps were so rigorous. This uh, Marine who was about to go to Paris Island, he wanted to prep up for it. And then he went to Paris Island. He wrote to his teammates saying, Actually, Marine Boot Camp at Paris Island is paradise compared to Bear Bryant's training camps. <laughs> oh, this is in 66 during Vietnam. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Better him than me, man. <laughs> Better him than me. Right. It's a, it's amazing how many different styles of coaches uh, that I mean, there's different styles that are successful. Uh, they can be polar opposites. You know, Bear Bryant was definitely the the master of the domain and uh, you know, the, the authority there, but you have other coaches that have great success that are players coaches and the you know, players just love to, to be around them and play hard for them. So it's amazing how the different uh, strategies both work, you know? And yet despite the severity that of his of, that he put his players through the love and reference i got for bear bryant from leroy jordan and jeff ryan uh, jeff rutledge i mean it, th there was love that as the son loves the father they loved him and he and those two guys spoke for all other alabama crimson tide players who played there during bear bryant's reign there i it was just you, you could feel it there. I mean, they just, they swore by the man and, and he, he was everything to him. I mean, he was, he was a father figure, especially those who came from broken, like Ken Stabler. Uh, he came from a broken home. I mean, his father was a nut job and, and I mean, Stabler was a rebel himself. I mean, there were conflicts between him and Bear Bryant, but at the end, you know, he, you know, he, I remember one time he, uh, Sabre told Time Magazine, he said, if I ever got a call in the middle of the night from Coach Bryant said, Kenny, I need your help. He said, I'm on the first flight out to Birmingham, Alabama, you know, to Birmingham, to Alabama. And he meant it too. And, and that's the thing about Snake. I mean, he led that team. I mean, those great quarterbacks, Joe Namath, Ken Stabler. Uh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it is, 
it's, uh, there were stupendous teams. And I think even more amazingly is that in the early 60s, from 61 to 66, this is during the civil rights era where all of Alabama was in a state of constant turmoil. And yet they played some of the greatest football in the history of the program there. And they were able to rise above those racial tensions. I mean, you've got Governor Wallace standing in the doorway there in 63. You know, the, um, uh, the, 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 the hoses in Birmingham there, the bombings there and all that. And yet they were playing stupendous football. And it's, and it's just absolutely amazing how they were able to rise above it. Yeah, that's uh, definitely uh, you know a very hot spot, and uh, for him to be able to to keep a team focused and, and play such good ball, that's a that's quite a testament to the coach he was. Yeah, that's definitely. Now, now some of the other coaches, you know, just like your your NFL book that we discussed, I, I love how you have the coaches of different eras that are you know mixed in here. And, uh, you know, fairly so. You already talked about Walter Camp, but, you know, you have guys like uh, Fielding Yoster are, are up in that, that top. And, uh, uh, you know, Rockney we talked about earlier. Um, and, and, you know, some of these you know, Pop Warners on that list. You know, just some of these great early coaches too. Wallace Wades uh, of the world. You know, those, those guys are, you know, you give them a great fair shake with your formula to, to put them in there if the recognition that they deserve. You know, with Hurry Up Yost, Fielding Hurry Up Yost, I stated in my book, when he retired in 1926 uh, after you know, as head coach of Michigan, he was, according to my calculations, the greatest college football coach of all time and remained so until, you know, Bud Wilkinson and Bud Bear Bryant came along. Yost literally put the Michigan Wolverines on the college football map before he came in 1901. Michigan, I mean, they had a football program, but they were, they were nothing. I mean, they were not, they were not even a power. I mean, they were just they were a lot of loose bricks without mortar. And when he came there, he converted them into a powerhouse. And in his first five seasons, they annihilated all competition. I mean, they were the power and what is now the Big Ten. Back then, it was simply called the Western Conference. But back then, I mean, they were called the point-a-minute teams because – they were winning games like 128 to nothing and literally averaging a point a minute. I mean, they played in the very first Rose Bowl game in 1902 against Stanford and beat Stanford 49 to nothing. I mean, it was just, I mean, they, they ran in a break. I mean, literally it's what we call hurry up offense. I mean, and there was pre forward pass era. There was no passing back then. The forward pass was not legalized until 1906 or 07. So it was strictly a running game. And back then, to get a first down, you had to get five yards and three tries to get a first down. So it was strictly a ground game. And yet his men would run off plays at a breakneck pace. I mean, as soon as the ball was whistled dead, the quarterback, Michigan quarterback, would start barking out the signals. And the men would quickly pick themselves off, set themselves in formation, and they would run the playoff. And it was just so relentless. I mean, they were just they would go through teams like a knife through warm butter. And they just, for five straight years, I mean, they were unbeaten. They only had one tie, and I think it was like 0-3 against Minnesota. But they had a perfect record. And then finally in 1905, last game of the season, they lost to the University of Chicago coached by Amos Alonzo Stagg 2 to nothing. It's one of the most immortal uh, matchups in college football history. It finally ended their, un their, their unbeaten streak. It was the end of an era for the point-a-minute teams. But, I mean, Yost dominated Michigan football. And, and then in the early 1920s, 
he came back uh, this time with one of the great passing combos in college football history, Benny Friedman to Benny Oosterband. Uh, I mean, Benny Friedman was, I mean, it was a, he was a great quarterback. I mean, back then throwing, uh, throwing a pass was a risky business. If you threw an incompletion uh, in the end zone, it was ruled a touchback. Uh, literally. I mean, instead of, you know, getting another down, no, it was ruled a touchback. The other team got the ball. I mean, you were taking, and back then the football was a lot fa uh, fatter. It wasn't really conducive for holding as a pass. It was more conducive for running and drop kicking. But Friedman, uh, uh, Friedman to Oosterband was the greatest pass, passing tandem in the 1920s there. And later, Benny Friedman went to the NFL and became an early uh, football hero and uh, was one of the great passers in the NFL there, late Benny Friedman. And finally, ultimately got elected to Pro Football Hall of Fame. And Benny Oosterband uh, was a pretty decent coach, too. I mean, he led Michigan to the national championship in 1948 there. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah. We, we had some great segments. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with John Behe has wrote uh, two books on, on Fielding Yost, and we had a great opportunity to talk to, to him uh, a few months back. We, we had like three or four episodes with him on you know, Fielding Yost. And you know, just some of the great things, I guess maybe what I was talking about earlier with being a player's coach, uh, you know, with the, the training tables and some of the great uh, things he did for his players yeah. and, uh, you know, and taught them the game and made them intelligent in the game so that they could react on the fly without having a coach. Cause most of his career, it was illegal for a coach to coach from the sideline, which sounds yeah. foreign to us, but uh, yeah, just a very interesting coach. And I'm, I'm glad to see him up there high on your list. Here's another thing about fielding hurry up Yost, his concept of a punt, and a pass and a prayer was so influential to college football coaches in the early 20th century. General Bob Nealon took one of it, uh, many of his seven uh, football maxims from Hurry Up Yost's concepts. Uh, Charlie Moran, who, uh, who led center and Texas A&M, he was very influenced by uh, uh, fielding Hurry Up Yost. Bud Wilkinson, uh, who influenced like Darrell Roy on them, they uh, was influenced by feeling hurry up, Yost. That idea of you know you utilizing having a good punter and a field goal kicker, uh, deferring, let the other team get the ball first, let them make the first mistake, and then you capitalize on the mistake. I mean that's that's classic hurry up, Yost. There, I mean up to even the nineteen sixties. His 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 influences were being expressed by college football coaches there, and it, it, it just I mean he had such an enormous impact there. I mean Dana X Bible, who really helped revive uh, Texas college football there, both at University of Texas and at Texas A and M, was deeply influenced by Hurry Up Yost. Had such enormous impact, just like Rockney. Just as Rockney had maximum impact, so did Yost, especially in terms of defense. Oh, okay. Now you talked about uh, one of Yost's uh, opposing coaches, Amos Alonzo Stagg. Now I, you know, I, he's one that I don't see on the list, but I'm, I'm sure because of his long tenure and having some, some poor seasons, is that maybe some of the reasons why he didn't make the cut on that? Yes. Unfortunately. Um, the fact now he was, I believe, yeah, according to my calculations, he was one of the top three coaches of the 1890s. But And also, I think he was in the top three in the 1900s. The problem with Stagg was his enormous longevity. Chicago was always, like, during the 1900s, they were second fiddle to Michigan there. He was always 
the second best team after hurry up Yost. It wasn't until 05 they finally knocked him off. Also, he never really had five straight seasons where he just like unlike Yost or Saban or Bear Bryant, an absolute total domination. I mean, he won some mythical national championships, but they were so spaced apart. And uh, another big factor was after 1924, he was informed by the president of the University of Chicago that football is going to be de-emphasized. And that meant he really couldn't get top-notch talent anymore. And he, any other coach, and today they probably would have quit and, and discussed, I'm leaving right here. But no, Yost stayed on until he reached the age of 70. And he, quote-unquote, retired in 1932. But his teams just went down the hill, down the hill. And that really dragged him down enormously. I mean, if he had just quit right then and there, I think he would have had a shot at the top 50. And then he also coached at the uh, College of the Pacific. And again, it was just, his record wasn't really that good and it dragged him down. It really dragged him down. So that's why, I mean, it's a shame. I mean, he, he was so innovative. He invented so many things. I mean, so many inventions and all that man in motion. Uh, I don't know if he invented the huddle, but various, yeah. uh, various other things and all that. I mean, he just, he was right there at the creation shifting backfield shifting you know and all that man in motion and the, whole, uh, the tackling dummy i think he created the tackling dummy and, and very, yeah. uh, things that we take for granted i mean but he created those things and uh, but no i that's I, such it's such a shame i know a friend of mine uh, uh my college football group uh, college football appreciate i think is sumner he wrote a splendid biography i think his name is charles sumner but it's up on amazon so uh, those you listeners you want a good bu- a bio on amos lonzo stack buy that book by his last name is summer charles sumner i think it is buy it's a top-notch book i do endorse it okay all right yeah. now you know that's just uh but your your list i mean it's a great explanation of why Stag isn't on there. A great yeah. explanation, you know, why Folsom is, and uh, some of the other ones are so high. Uh, you know, just a, just a brilliant list, and it's a great place uh, to, to to go here to reference to see where these coaches stack up over you know almost 150 years of, of football here. Uh, so it's just a tremendous job, and I my hats off to you because it's a uh, quite an accomplishment. And uh, yeah. you know. You know uh, is the book still available for, for purchase? And uh, if so, Absolutely. where can people get it? Yes. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is up. You can only buy it online at Amazon. It is up on Amazon. It's always going to be up. It's uh, you know, it's not available in storage. You must buy it online and Amazon right now. Uh, it is on sale at 30% off and will remain on sale until after the national championship game is played in January. So if you're looking for a stocking stuffer for Christmas, go get it. It's on sale at 30% off. You can just buy it at Amazon there. Okay. And uh, you segued right into the next thing I was going to talk about. Uh, you know, uh, Matthew's going to be uh, helping us. We're gonna, The whole month of December, we're going to be talking about uh, the Rose Bowl. It's the 100th anniversary of the stadium, the Rose Bowl. And we're going to be uh, having a lot of guests and historians on the whole month of December. And Matthew is kindly enough to uh, join us. He's going to be joining us for uh, a, more than a few uh, uh, of these great uh, Rose Bowl episodes. So we can look forward to, to hearing more from Matthew here in the coming month. Uh, Matthew, do you have any uh, last words on some of these great coaches uh, before we, we sign off here? Yeah, you know, you were talking about surprises. Here's a big surprise. Tom Osborne of Nebraska. 
I knew Osborne was going to be in the top 50, but what shocked me was how high up he is. I mean, right now I got him at number four, but uh, when I was doing my calculations before Nick Saban and Urban Meyer surpassed Bear Bryant, I actually had Tom Osborne second behind Bear Bryant. I mean, when you look at his 25 seasons of coaching, absolute consistency. I mean, actually, if he, you know, he lost that 1984 Orange Bowl game against Miami, one of the greatest college bowl games in all of college football history, according to my calculations. And he also lost the national championship game to Florida State in 93. If he had won either one of those games, guess what? He would have ranked number one, according wow. to my rating system. I, I mean, that surprised the heck out of me because I sometimes when I was doing my research for the book, I would do what if scenarios. What happens if this coach had won this thing here? How would it have changed him? And it's like, whoa. I mean, my mind was blown. I mean, people don't realize that, but yeah, that's how great a coach he was. And also, I had the privilege of interviewing Tom Osborne. He was one of my first, he was my, literally my second interview for the book. My very first interview was the late Vince Dooley, who we just lost a few days ago. May God rest his soul. Osborne Absolutely. was glorious and magnificent with me. Kind of Gary Cooperish, Midwest taciturn, but when he said something, every word he said was were, uh, was it counted was good as gold. I mean, quick and to the point, no nonsense. He he cut right straight to the thing. I remember we talked about his his his, his decision to go for the two point conversion in that Orange Bowl game. He could have played for the tie, done like Paraparsichin did in '66, played for the tie and guarantee the national championship. He said, no, he said he had always talked to himself and he came to a situation like that. No, he would always go for the win. He said, and I myself would never vote for a coach who played for a tie and uh, backed into it by a tie like that. He said, I, 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 I wouldn't have voted for a coach like that. And I didn't want to do it like that. And he said, that's why I went for the two point conversion there. And I remember at the time watching the game, I applauded his courage and all of that. I mean, if it hadn't tipped off that one guy's hands, he would have made it too. But Osborne, what, I mean, that blew me away how great his teams were. I mean, right now, let's see. I had Osborne sixth in terms of career value, 11th in average season rating, but second in terms of best five consecutive seasons. I mean, only Nick Saban surpassed him and, uh, and uh, seventh in terms of his B5 value. I mean, but that surprised me how high up he was. I thought, whoa, whoa, that was that was a big surprise, the biggest surprise when I was doing my calculations. But a truly great coach and a great man. Yeah. Okay. Well, you, know, you brought up a question. You know, definitely Osborne's a, a great uh, feature too. But the the book you're saying, you know, it's thirty percent off till the bowl season. Now, with it being on Amazon, do you does the book get revised so if somebody bought the book today and bought it in february it, it may be different because the rankings change is that what you're saying no no that would involve too much work alterations oh, okay. of the master no it's it, it is as it was when it came out in 2019 i don't do i'm not doing updates or anything okay like so that. the update the updates you see on your facebook page on the the uh, college history and uh, literature yes. page if okay. you want to know the updated ratings, you just join the college football uh, history and literature appreciation page. And every late January, early February, you'll see my updated calculations there. Okay. 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Matthew DiBiase uh, in his great book, uh, "Lords of the Gridiron: College Football's Greatest Coaches." Uh, you know, also don't forget about the Lords of Gridiron too. And uh, you know, he's, he's got some other great books too. Maybe you want to mention those before before we let you go here. Yeah, it's my first book, Bench Bosses: The NHL's Coaching Elite, uh, which came out in 2015. It's up on Amazon. It's up on Amazon there. And also my second book, The Art of the Dealers, uh, the NHL's Greatest General Managers, is also up on Amazon. And right now it's on sale at 30% off and will remain on sale for the, the entire duration of the present NHL season. It won't, uh, so, you know, get it while you can. Uh, it's, a, it's an innovative book and it's, it's uh, long, I'm not other books, it's a, it sells, especially in Canada, yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Matthew, thank you very much. And uh, we'll talk to you in a few weeks here when we get into the Rose Bowl segment. So thank you, sir. Thank you very much, Darren. Thank you. and God bless you. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, as well as Jersey Dispatch, on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network.